Good evening. Boy, that, uh, that's working pretty well, isn't it? Always appreciate an opportunity to be with God's people. Always appreciate an opportunity to meditate on another portion of God's mind. You know that's what the Bible is. It's as much of God's mind as he cares for us to have at this time, and it does us a great deal of good to meditate on the things he's chosen to share with us. One of the things that I like to do in my own quiet time, in my own meditation, is study Bible leaders, to study the people who were most responsible for the building up of the Lord's church in the first instance. When I look at my Bible, it's very clear to me that Jesus desires that his people work to build his church, and he desires that some accept the responsibility of leading others in building up his church. And there are lots of great servant leaders in the Bible. I mean, we can, we can look in the Old Testament and the New Testament and find many examples of servant leaders. You think about the New Testament and your mind probably goes first and foremost to Paul. I mean, we have so much material about his life and his ministry, so much material in terms of his writings, and it's easy for us to see the prominent part that he played in building up the Lord's church. You may think about the apostles. You think about the twelve, as they were sometimes called, and, and they had a prominent part in building up the Lord's church. I mean, they laid the foundation of Christ through their preaching, and Paul said nobody else can lay the foundation. The apostles had already laid it. But next to that group, the twelve, the only other group in the, Old Te- in the New Testament that really stands out as a group, I mean, is the seven. And perhaps you remember this uh, this group of seven. In the book of Acts in chapter 6, the Bible tells us that there had been uh, some disputing, some murmuring that had arisen because the Hellenists or the Grecian widows were being overlooked in the daily ministration. And this is the circumstance in which we're introduced to this man, Philip. Now there were seven special men chosen for this special work. But we don't have a great deal of information about most of the seven. It's kind of like the twelve. I mean, we see a few of them being featured, but some of them are only, only mentioned in passing almost, and so we don't know a great deal about their activities. But this seven, two of them are, are discussed in some greater detail than the others. And of course, we know that Stephen was stoned in the very next chapter. He was the first that we can read about dying for his faith. And then there's this man, Philip, one of the great leaders in the first century church. And I invite you to meditate with me for a few moments about the work that he did in building up our Lord's church. Acts chapter 6, that's where we meet him. The Bible says in Acts 6 and verse number 1, Now in these days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring of the Grecian Jews against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. You guys recall that there on the day of Pentecost, there were, there were Jews from all over the diaspora, if you will. They had come to Jerusalem to worship. They, they run into the truth of the gospel and are converted. They hadn't necessarily planned to abide in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas for an extended period of time after Pentecost. But here they are because they had been converted to Christ. 
The Bible tells us that uh, they all had things in common. You know, the Bible tells us about Barnabas and his sharing the things that he had with those who were in need in the previous chapter. But here in chapter 6, we see there is some controversy because some of those who were in need were being neglected. I don't figure this was intentional. I, I assume that everybody had the best of intentions, but the fact is there were some differences between some of those early Christians, just like you see some differences between Christians today. Some of the Jews were native to Palestine. They, they had grown up in that area. They lived in that area. And so they had a certain culture that wasn't necessarily shared in whole with the Hellenist Jews, those who lived among the Grecians. The Bible says as they are in these similar quarters together now and they have all these things in common, some are being neglected in the daily ministration. And there was some murmuring because of it. I'm just telling you that, that here in the early church, there were some challenges that would arise. There were some difficulties just like there are today. And I want you to see how this particular difficulty is addressed and dealt with. The Bible says in verse number 2, The twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not fit that we should forsake the word of God and serve tables. Look you out therefore, brethren, from among you, seven men of good report, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who whom we may appoint over this business but we will continue steadfastly in prayer and in the ministry of the word and the saying please the whole multitude they said listen you know what we need we need seven men seven men who are capable seven men who can be trusted to step in and deal with this real need that has arisen so that we can make sure we give ourselves first and foremost to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And the Bible says, listen, that pleased everybody. You mean the solution then is going to be that seven men have to step forward and serve and lead to make sure that the work is done. Yes, ma'am and yes, sir. And so they choose, the Bible says, Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands upon them. Listen to this. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem exceedingly, and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. The first time we see Philip, this great servant leader in the first century church, the first time we see him, we see him serving those who were being neglected. That servant leadership. You ever thought, stop to think about what God thinks about people who would be most easily neglected? You know, in an assembly, like ours, it's easy for people to sort of gravitate toward folks they have known for a long time, people they already are very comfortable with. And when you do that, listen, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you do that, you know what happens. There is a tendency to overlook other people. Now, that's not intended to be nefarious. That's not intended to be wrong. But it can still happen that some people are overlooked. Stephen was the kind of person known by reputation, trusted by his brethren to step in and serve people who would otherwise have been neglected. James would say this is uh, true religion or pure religion and undefiled. You take care of the widows 
you take care of the orphans. You wonder why that is. Because God has a love for the widows and for the orphans. God has a love for people who are so easily neglected by others. And he calls his people to have that same kind of heart, that same kind of mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the nature of the body of Christ. And he says, listen, we're, we're not all the same. Everybody's not an eye, okay? Everybody can't be the right hand. Everybody doesn't play the same part. But he says, but everybody is important. Every member is important in a human body. And every member is important in the Lord's body. And so he says in verses 22 and 23, we need to be extra careful to make sure that the ones who seem less necessary, the ones who seem less, the word in the old version is comely, they're less attractive, maybe for some reason they don't gather our attention as quickly. He said, we need to make sure that we recognize that they too are necessary. And he says, on the ones who would be most easily overlooked, we ought to bestow the more abundant honor. I'm saying to you that if we have God's mind, our mind is going to be one that says we have to make sure that, that we serve those who would be most easily neglected. And if we fashion ourselves as leaders, and let me tell you something, every one of us ought to fashion ourselves as leaders, at least within our sphere of influence, we ought to have a mind to serve those who are neglected. The first time we see Philip, that's what we see him doing. If we want to uh, build up the Lord's church, we have to remember that uh, we're all in this together. I can't run off and leave any part of my body behind. And so if there's some part of my body that needs attention, I have to have enough common sense to stop and give it the attention that it needs. If we're going to move forward as a local body of believers, we can't leave any part of our body behind. We have to have a mind that says we will serve those who might be most easily neglected, like Philip. The second time we see this man, we see him in Acts chapter 8. And of course, he's, he's well known for this chapter. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 8 that Paul was, or Saul, as he was known amongst the Jews, uh, Paul was raising havoc in the church. He's, he's going in and taking men and women out and sending them off to prison. And so he's persecuting the church. And the Bible says he laid waste to the church in chapter 8 and verse number 3. This is the context in which the Bible tells us that the Jews were scattered abroad and they went about preaching the word of God everywhere they went. And then look at verse number five. This is the second time we see this man. He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed unto them Christ. And the multitudes gave heed with one accord unto the things that were spoken by Philip when they heard and saw the signs which he did. For from many of those that had unclean spirits, they came out crying with a loud voice, and many were palsied, and many that were lame were healed, and there was much joy in that city. You know what stands out to me about this man the second time I see him? I again see him overcoming certain kinds of boundaries that might have stopped or hindered somebody else. 
I mean, in chapter 6, he's, he's going in and working amongst these Grecian widows. There, there had been some controversy. There was some barrier to overcome, and, and maybe everybody couldn't do it, but he did, and the church grew as a result. Here I see him again. He has gone to Samaria, and you guys remember, the, the Samaritans were sort of a mixture of Jews and, and Gentiles, and so the, Gentile, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't have close relations, not close relations at all. But he finds himself among the Samaritans, a, a people with whom the Jews had nothing to do, according to the woman at Jacob's well. And you know what he does. You remember that Jesus said to the woman at Jacob's well, you don't know what you're worshiping. You, you remember that? I mean, they were religious people, but they were also ignorant religiously. They didn't have enough information, enough right information. You know what Philip does when he finds himself among them? Bible says he preached Christ. There were some, there were some in the early church in those days that didn't care to uh, overcome certain kinds of boundaries and deal with certain kinds of difficulties. But here was a man who saw his service to God as being greater than those boundaries. Here was a man when confronted with people who were a little different than he was, had no problem whatsoever opening his mouth and proclaiming Jesus Christ. You know what happened as a result of that? The Bible says many believed. The church grew. I want you to recognize something. This is, this is something that's special about this man. This wasn't a one-time thing with him. This wasn't even a, a two-time thing with him. This was the way he lived his life. This was how he conducted himself. This is part of what made him special. This is part of why the church grew, because of men with a heart like his. Where do you get all that from? Same chapter. Chapter 8, if you look at the end of that chapter... You know that in between here, he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, another man that may have had some, some differences with him. But in chapter 8, you'll see there in verse number 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord called away Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more, for he went on his way rejoicing. I see two times the Bible says he taught someone the gospel. They accepted that gospel and went on their way rejoicing. But then here in verse number 40, listen to this. Philip was found at Azotus. Now, this is Ashdod. This is one of the Philistine strongholds. He finds himself among another group of people that he has some differences with, a group of people, another group that had been antagonistic with the Jews. He finds himself with them, and the Bible says, and passing through, he preached the gospel to all the cities till he came to Caesarea. It didn't matter where he was. I mean, everywhere he went. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, why is that important? I'm telling you that this man was special and that he would work to overcome certain kinds of boundaries that would have hindered other people to edify, to build up the Lord's church. And that's what a leader has to do. That's what a servant of Christ has to do. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, you know this, in verse 11, listen, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, one group of people, pastors and teachers. Why did he do that? Well, the Bible says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, unto the edifying of the body of Christ. All those people, apostles and the uh, prophets, 
and the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, you know what they have in common? Their responsibility was to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Teach the gospel to mature people to serve the church, and that's how you build it. And that's what Philip did. Listen, the second time we see this man, he is teaching the gospel to everyone that he meets. And you know that we all have a responsibility to do that, but I'm saying to you that leaders in particular have a responsibility to do that. Leaders in particular have a responsibility to do that. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says, among other things, that an elder must be apt to teach. I don't know if you, I don't know if you really like that word apt the way I do, because that one word, three letters, says a whole lot. If a person is apt to do something, that means you are likely to find them doing it at a high level. Apt to do it. Quick to do it. Good at doing it. And the Bible says that an elder, a pastor, has to be apt to teach. Easy to be found teaching and doing that at a high level because that's necessary to build up the Lord's church. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 24, he's speaking to the young preacher and he says there that he had to be apt to teach. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to see the Lord's church grow, somebody's going to have to do some teaching. I wonder who that is. Well, I think it might be you. And certainly it's going to be your leaders showing you by example how this is supposed to be done. See, I know it's not just, I know it's not just the elders, and I, and I know it's not just the preacher. I mean, a person who fashions himself a preacher because everybody ought to be doing some preaching. I know it's not just those people because the book of Titus chapter 2, the Bible says that uh, the older women ought to teach the younger women and listen to it, train them to love their husbands and their children. Everybody's supposed to be doing some teaching to mature the church for the work of the ministry. And that's how the church is edified. That's how it's built. That's how it grows, through teaching of the gospel. And so the second time we see this man, we see him teaching the ignorant. And by ignorant, I simply mean that in the technical sense, the unlearned, people who don't know. He, he takes the time and he makes the time to teach them. In between these uh, two passages that I've highlighted in chapter 8, you know that he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. And you know this, you know the circumstances here, but I want to look at this with you if you don't mind. In chapter 8 and verse 29, listen to this. The Bible tells us there was this man from Ethiopia, and he's sort of come within the purview of, of Philip here. And look at verse 29. The Bible says, The Spirit says to Philip, Go near and join yourself to this chariot. Verse number 30, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you read? And he says, how can I except someone should guide me? And he besought Philip to come up and sit with him. And then he tells us the passage that he was reading was from Isaiah 53. Listen to this. Listen to this. In the midst of all this teaching, the Bible tells us that this man, Philip, ran to obedience. He ran to do what God wanted done. 
It maybe seems like a small thing to you, but, but I think it's a pretty significant thing because sometimes we think that grudging service is enough. And I say to you that grudging service doesn't bless anyone because God not only looks at our hands, but he looks at our hearts as well, and our hearts and our hands have to be aligned with his will. Here is a man, the Spirit says to him, you see that chariot, you see that man, go and join yourself to that chariot. And he hikes up his garments, as it were, and he runs to do the will of the Spirit of God. That's impressive to me. He ran to obedience. You remember when God tells Abraham that he needs to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, his special son, Isaac. And the Bible says that Abraham rose up early in the morning to do that. I, I imagine that if, if I knew that I had to do something like that, I, I'd probably want to wait until the very end of the day. I mean, I, I wouldn't be in a hurry maybe to, to sacrifice either one of my two boys. God told this man that something needed to be done, and he got up early in the morning to get God's will done. I think this is like that. God calls a man to do a thing, he should be running to do what God wants done. Leaders do that. I remember Noah. The Bible says of him that uh, he was a preacher of righteousness. As best I can figure it, he, he had something about 100 years, better than 100 years, to try to tell people and warn people that the flood was coming. And, and the Bible says only eight souls were saved and that by water. Listen, this man was a leader if only he led his family. But listen to this. The Bible says in Genesis 6 and 22 about him, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded, so did he. He ran to obedience. God says to him, you build the ark this way. Listen, I want it to be three stories high. I want one window in this thing, and I want you to pitch it within and without with pitch. And he does it exactly the way God said. You know why I think that's important for leaders? Because the Bible teaches that Christians are to submit to leaders, right? I mean, Hebrews 13 and 7, that we ought to obey those that have the rule over us. And, and we ought to make it easy for them so that it's not hard for them to watch for our souls. The Bible tells me that in the church, God expects submission of all the members. You know, in society, the Bible teaches me that God expects submission of, of all the citizens, but certainly God expects Christians to be submissive to the authorities in this world. Romans 13, you guys know that. Well, here's the thing. Leaders who expect others to submit to them ought to show them how to submit by submitting to Christ. Uh, you, you know, if you, you ladies, maybe you have a husband and uh, he's telling you, you know, that it's your job to submit to him. I challenge you. Why don't you say, listen, I'd love to submit to you. Can you show me how it's done by submitting to Christ? Everyone has to submit. I'm saying to you that a leader, a servant leader, shows the way to submission by running to do God's will, and his example shows others how that ought to be done. Listen, Philip is an example to us, and one of the outstanding things about him is that he was submissive to God's will. Don't make it a light thing that he ran to do what God wanted done. You know, sometimes we can know that God wants a thing done, and that's the last thing on our list to do. I'm saying to you, 
if we want to see the church be all that it can be, God's will can't be on the list. It has to be the list. And Philip is that. We don't see this man for a little while in the book of Acts. We see him serving those who are neglected. We see him teaching those who are unlearned. He teaches the ignorant. We see him running to obedience. And and then we don't see him for a while. We see him in Acts chapter 8. We don't see him again, at least not by name, until Acts chapter 21. And that's the verse. I asked for the verse to be read, and I appreciate that reading, Acts chapter 21 and verse number 8. Listen, I want to show you a couple of things, though, here in Acts chapter 21. In Acts chapter 21 and verse number 8, Luke is writing, and he says that he and others, including Paul, had come to Caesarea in verse number 8. On the morrow we departed and came to Caesarea. Why is that significant? Because there at the end of Acts chapter 8, that's the last place we see Philip. You know, he, he went through Azotus or Ashdod in the Bible. Bible says he came to Caesarea. It seems that he settled there in Caesarea. It seems that he made his home there in Caesarea. So he was there for some period of time. And now here come Paul and those who were traveling with him. And the Bible says that when they came, they entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, he's called. And we know why, Acts chapter 8, who was one of the seven. That designation from Acts chapter 6. And the Bible says we abode with him. Boy, what's special about that? You ever had anybody spend the night at your house? The next thing we see about this man is that he received his fellow servants. I'm going to tell you something. Uh, In our day and time, hospitality is not what it used to be. It certainly isn't what we read about in the Bible. There were some times... In the Bible, you remember this, there were some times in the Bible where people showed themselves to be inhospitable. I mean, the, uh, the Edomites, they were cousins to Israel. And when Israel was coming up out of Egypt, they just wanted to pass through. And the people said, no, you can't come through here. You remember that, uh, you remember that David has, has saved the, the sheep and the men of Nabal, and he comes to Nabal later and he says, listen, I, if you could help me and my men, if you could give us a, a little bit of substance, and, and Nabal says, who is David? He doesn't care anything about David. He's not willing to be, be listened to this, a lover of strangers. The word hospitality at its root has the word Love. A lover of strangers, listen to this, one who is generous to guests. Somebody might think this is not that important. And then I remind them that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says right before it says that an elder has to be apt to teach, it says he has to be hospitable. Romans 12 and 13, the Bible says we should... uh, We should communicate with one another concerning our needs. We should share with each other concerning our needs. And the Bible says we should be given to hospitality. 1 Peter 4 and verse 9, same thing. You guys remember in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 2, the Bible says uh, we should entertain strangers depends on your translation 
we should entertain strangers. And the Bible says because some unknowingly had entertained angels. You know, they didn't realize this. It was just somebody who was unknown to them. The Bible says we should entertain strangers. But it's translated that way only the one time. It's the same word translated hospitable in other places. We should be lovers of strangers and we should be generous to our guests. What I'm saying to you is that's what we see Philip doing the next time we see him. Men have come and they're God's servants and they are coming through the area where he is and he makes his home a haven of hospitality. I mean, how does that edify? How does that build up? Why don't you ask the man in uh, Judges 19 who couldn't find a place for he and his concubine to lodge at night? I tell you something, we don't appreciate hospitality until we see inhospitality. But God's design is that his people would be lovers of one another even when they don't know one another. God's design is that God's people would be generous to one another, especially those who are traveling and working and preaching so that they might be helped along the way in their work. That blesses everyone. Hospitality. In 3 John, you guys remember this, John has some concern about the way things are going there in the church, but he says something about hospitality here, and he says something about the importance of the same. In 3 John, beginning at verse number 5, he says, Beloved, listen to the way he says this, Beloved, you do a faithful work in whatever you do towards them that are brethren and strangers withal. Wait a minute. He's talking about hospitality, and he says, you do a faithful work however you help those who are brethren and strangers in the area where you are. Then he says, who bear witness to thy love before the church, whom you will do well to set forward on their journey worthily of God. You would do well. When God's servants come within your sphere of influence, if you show yourself to be a lover, even if they are strangers, and if you are generous to them while they are in your sphere, he says, because that for the sake of the name they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. You know these, these folks have already made certain sacrifices. And he says, we therefore ought to welcome such that we may be fellow workers for the truth. See, that's why I say he received his fellow workers. Because even though on this occasion at least he wasn't the one who was doing the teaching, he was supporting those who were doing the teaching. Hospitality. That's what the uh, early church was showing to one another when the Bible says they had all things in common. And nobody acted like what they had was theirs, at least theirs only, but they shared easily with others. They were generous to their guests. Leaders do that. Servant leaders do that. And every Christian is supposed to do that. I'm telling you, it helps to build up the Lord's church. In the next verse, Acts 21 and verse 9, we get this brief insight into 
into uh, Philip's home. In Acts 21 and verse 9, we, we see that he has received the, the uh, preachers who are coming through his area, and it's in that context that we read about his offspring. The Bible says in verse number 9, now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Listen to this. He had four young unmarried daughters, and they abode, it seems, in his home, and the Bible says that they also taught the gospel. They also prophesied. Now listen, prophesied suggests that they were under inspiration in their teaching. And so there was some sphere in which they taught. No, it didn't violate First Timothy 2. They, they didn't usurp authority and, and speak over an audience that included men. But you know what? They had occasions in the first century for women to teach other women. You know that? Titus chapter 2, I mean, we have occasion for women to teach other women. Maybe they were teaching the children as well, but they had some occasion to serve, some occasion to teach, some occasion to obey and submit by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they did it all four of them. If it was one, maybe it was some kind of accident. I mean, maybe Philip just got lucky. Maybe the one had something within her that she would have turned out that way without any kind of guidance. But it was for, and that was no accident. You see, his home had to have been a good moral training ground and atmosphere for young people to be nurtured up to become servants and leaders after him. What I'm suggesting in this regard is that servant leaders have to nurture the young. Servant leaders have to invest themselves in the servant leaders of tomorrow, today. That's what Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 is teaching. There are people that God put in the church to equip other people in the church so that other people could serve within the church and build up the body of Christ. I don't want to say too much about this because we just don't have a great deal of detail here. But what I can tell you is that Philip had to have made an investment in those who were in his home in order for all four of them to be in his home and doing this work after his example. We have to do that as well. Fathers are expected to train up their children, right? Ephesians 6 and verse number 4. By God's design, elders, Bible leaders within a local congregation, they have to have raised up their children to be faithful. Titus 1 and 6. They have to nurture their young. You think about a man like this and all the great work that he did. I say to you, he was one of the great servant leaders in the early church. And listen, he's not alone. There were plenty of men. It's just that we have a little more material about him than we have about some others. But when we look at his life and these brief glimpses into his life that we see in the Bible, friends, there's a great deal that can challenge us in our work. I mean, the first thing we see him doing is serving those who might otherwise be neglected. Is there anyone in our number? who is unable to serve those who might be overlooked and in so doing edify the church. 
The second time we see him, we see him teaching the ignorant and the unlearned. Listen, by teaching the gospel, he's helping people to grow and mature. Not only accepting the gospel, but then growing in the gospel so they can serve the Lord Jesus Christ to their fullest potential. Is there anyone in our number who is not able to teach someone who doesn't know something? We see him running to obedience. You know, delayed obedience is disobedience, right? I mean, you tell God says you do something today and you say, I'll get to it tomorrow. What is that? That's disobedience. When we know that God has a calling on us, when we read in the Bible that he says this is something that we need to do, you know what we do? We run to it. By doing that, we, we serve ourselves, but we show others how to serve. He received his fellow workers. Is there anyone among us who can't do that? Be generous to someone that we don't know. Be a lover of strangers. All of us can do that. It helps to build the Lord's church. Philip nurtured the young. See, all of us can, can look to someone who's coming behind us and make an investment in someone who's coming behind us so they can serve as we are serving. Every one of us can do that. Every one of us can be a servant leader in our sphere of influence. Every one of us can edify and build up the Lord's church. Every one of us should. Philip served the same Jesus that we serve. Jesus died for his sin the same as he died for ours. Yeah, but Philip was taken by the sacrifice that Jesus made. And he made it his business to serve the Lord Jesus with vigor and enthusiasm. And I'm reminding you that Jesus didn't do any more for him than he did for us. We ought to have the same kind of vigor and enthusiasm. We ought to be found serving and leading. Jesus died for our sins. He did it because he loved us enough to do that. He paid a price that we couldn't pay. He redeemed us from the bondage we sold ourselves into. He died for us, and what he asked us to do in return is live for him. We believe in him. We accept his authority. We repent of our sins. We change our minds to bring our minds into conformity with his mind. Let this mind be in you. We adopt Christ's mind. We confess him with our mouths because we believe in him in our hearts and we submit to baptism. Somebody says, well, I haven't been baptized. And then I just remind you that Philip ran to obedience. Jesus said, if you want to be saved, you believe in me and you be baptized. And sometimes people will read that and they'll say, well, I'll be, I'll be baptized another time. I'm just saying to you, friends, that delayed obedience is disobedience. If Jesus said it, and he did, run to submission. You're baptized for the remission of your sins, and you live a life of faithful service to God until he comes again or he calls you home. If we can help you, we would love to do that. We're going to sing this song of invitation, and it is your invitation to let us know if we can help you how we can.
Will you stand and sing with us, please?